The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Well, good morning, Parkwood. It is a great joy and privilege uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. My name is Andrew Morrow. I serve as a pastoral apprentice on the staff here, and I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity to uh, preach to you this morning. Our text will be 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so I would invite you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, as we'll be resuming our study of 1 Corinthians this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one uh, on a seat back in a chair near you, and our passage will be on page 956, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to be working our way through uh, the entire chapter this morning, so uh, we will not read the entirety of the text at the beginning like we normally do, but I would like to pray for us as we begin our study of God's Word. So would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, O Lord, this morning that you would bring clarity and conviction to our hearts and that we may be compelled to preach your glorious gospel. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. We pray that you would speak to our hearts now. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is the new year, and talk of resolutions abounds. Of course, many of the typical New Year's resolutions uh, involve managing finances better, uh, seeking to eat healthier, and trying to work out at the gym more. In the local Charlotte area, some of the other top resolutions uh, were to stop using disposable plastics, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and to stay awesome. <laughs> An interesting resolution was made by uh, a former owner of a pizza delivery chain who had posted on his Instagram page that his New Year's resolution for 2020 was to consume 50 pizzas in 30 days. This was supposedly an improvement on last year's resolution of eating 40 pizzas in 30 days. And now you may be against or for New Year's resolutions, but all of us have commitments and priorities in our lives. So we all operate with some kind of resolutions, with some kind of priorities. And I want to draw your attention this morning to some of the key resolutions or priorities of the Apostle Paul. We know that Paul was resolved to preach the gospel. He was resolved to preach the gospel. Perhaps you'll recall several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul writes, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Paul was determined. He was resolved to preach the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, the Apostle Paul was resolved to place no obstacle in the way of the gospel. He was resolved to place no obstacle in the way of the gospel. And if you look at our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12, look at the second part of verse 12, where Paul says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And the word translated obstacle is used only here in the New Testament. It means a cutting into and was used by the Greeks as a military term. Uh, It referred to cutting slits in the road to prevent the advance of an enemy. Thus, an obstacle would hold back the enemy's progress or uh, block their way. And you think about an obstacle course for a moment, how it's intentionally designed to make it difficult to get to the other side. I was at the trampoline park here recently with my family, and there's a small obstacle course designed there that is immensely difficult uh, to get across to the other side, maybe not for kids, but certainly for adults. Um, It requires immense upper body strength, and if you fall down into the little foam Uh, blocks below, it's quite difficult to get out, particularly with your socks still on. Uh, Obstacle courses make it difficult to get to the other side. Obstacles make it difficult to get to the other side. And we saw in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that the Corinthians were insisting on their own rights. They were placing obstacles or stumbling blocks in the way of their brothers and sisters. We learned that our choices are not to harm our brothers and sisters in Christ, implying that our choices, when we uh, insist on our own rights, can hinder another person's walk. Now, in chapter 9, Paul continues on with this idea of not causing other people to stumble. But here, he is specifically concerned with the progress of the gospel. And Paul was resolved to eliminate anything in his life that might prevent a clear path for the gospel to go forth. He prioritized the gospel, and he sought to do nothing that would hinder it. He was an evangelist, and he was burdened for the salvation of souls. And we are called to follow his example. That is what 1 Corinthians 9 is about, is is Paul setting himself forth as an example for the Corinthians and for us to follow today. So our main idea for the sermon this morning is this, with the gospel of Christ as our priority, we place no obstacle in the way of others. And Paul gives us three principles to follow in the passage. First of all, with the gospel of Christ as our priority, we place no obstacle in the way of others by surrendering our rights verses 1 through 18, we are called to surrender our rights. Now, in the opening 14 verses, Paul first defends his rights. He establishes and defends his rights. He says that he is an apostle with rights to financial support. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
And apostles were those who had been personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The office of the apostle was limited to the 12 disciples and the apostle Paul, who was the last of the apostles. He was an eyewitness to the risen Lord. And the Corinthian congregation was the seal or confirmation of his apostleship. And he continues to make a case or defense for his apostolic rights. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Paul had a right to food and drink. The apostles had rights to marry and for their wives also to be supported financially with them in the ministry. They had a right to refrain from working other jobs and to be supported by the ministry of the gospel. And as an apostle, Paul had the rights to this financial support for a number of reasons. He lists them here. First of all, he's an apostle. as an apostle, he has the right to financial support because it was common practice. Common practice. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The soldier and the farmer and the shepherd all benefit from their labor. So should not then apostles be able to do the same? And Paul also had the right to financial support because it was a biblical principle. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here he's quoting from Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater in order to make his point. If God has said that animals could eat from their labor in the fields, the lesser reality, are not humans given this same right, the greater reality, and particularly those who have devoted their lives to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul asks, verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Paul also had the right to financial support because of the Old Testament example. Verse 13, he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? This speaks of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament who were given the right to eat food from the animal sacrifices that were made at the temple. They had a right to eat the food. Also, as an apostle, Paul had the right to financial support because of Christ's command, of Christ's command in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And this is the culmination of Paul's argument of why he has a right to financial support. Jesus commanded that preachers of the gospel be financially supported 
for their work, for he himself taught that the laborer is worthy of his wages. But the point of this entire section and this entire chapter is that Paul has these rights and he makes a defense for them, but the point is that he surrendered them. He surrendered them for the sake of the gospel. Paul surrendered his rights. Look at verse 12 again. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He surrenders his rights as an act of love. When he says we endure anything, this foreshadows what he's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where love bears all things. Love endures all things. As an act of love, Paul surrendered his rights to financial support so as to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And then in verse 15, he says again, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He mentions twice that he made no use of his right. So the rights here that Paul speaks of is something that he could say yes or no to. Sometimes when we talk about this, uh, or when this is discussed, the rights of Christians, it's called Christian liberties. There are things that we can say yes or no to. It's not things that are explicitly prescribed or prohibited in the scriptures. Ministers are to be supported for their work in the gospel, but like Paul, they had a choice to say yes or no to that support. And Paul, in this circumstance, and was much of his practice among new believers, said, no, I don't want your money because the gospel is free. The gospel is free of charge, and I want no obstacle to be in the way of it. So he's presenting us with a flexible principle to follow here, not an exact prescription. It's a principle to apply meaning that we must surrender our rights. He's not saying that all missionaries and pastors and evangelists shouldn't get paid because the case is made in the scriptures that that they should. But in certain instances, they may forego their rights for the sake of the gospel, as did the apostle Paul. So he's continuing to teach the principle that he established in chapter eight, that a believer may have certain rights, but he's under no obligation to exercise those rights, those freedoms, those liberties in Christ, He's under no obligation to exercise them at every possible opportunity. And he wasn't writing so that the Corinthians would start supporting him. He wasn't complaining to them. Far from it. His commitment was to the priority of the gospel. Commenting on verse 15, Calvin said, so much did he prefer, even before his own life, the power of advancing the gospel. Paul understood what it meant to deny himself and to take up his cross daily and to follow Christ. And why did he do this? Why did he surrender these rights? Because he was compelled to preach the gospel free of charge. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. 
He did not want finances to be a hindrance to others. And so the Apostle Paul willingly laid down his rights so that the free offer of the gospel could really go forth free of charge. And that was his reward. That was his reward, to offer the gospel free of charge. He sacrificed himself for others. You know, I believe that for all of us, it's so easy for us to insist on our own rights. And we're prone to do this. We're prone to insist on, on our own personal rights and our own liberties. Elizabeth Elliot wrote an article in 2002 entitled Laying Down Our Rights. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, her first husband was Jim Elliot, the missionary martyr to Ecuador. And Elizabeth wrote this article on laying down our rights. And I want to read an excerpt from it where she said, in society today, it's natural for people to demand their rights. But followers of Jesus surrender their rights to him, enjoying only the privileges he, in, loving, in his loving sovereignty, allows. She then goes on to ask, well, what are some of the rights that disciples of Jesus must be willing to surrender? And I want to mention a few of them. In the article, she lists several, but I want to highlight a couple in particular. She says that these are some of the rights that disciples of Christ must be willing to surrender. The right to have a comfortable and secure home. Or the right to be honored and served. Or the right to fit in to society. Now, the application will, of course, look differently for each one of us. But what rights, what liberties, what freedoms in Christ might you need to personally surrender for the sake of the gospel? When we insist on our own rights, when we insist on our own way, we may be placing obstacles in the way of others. But that's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of love. Love does not insist on its own way. Love considers others more important than oneself. So let us follow the example of the Apostle Paul and be willing to surrender our rights so that the gospel may go forth unhindered. The second principle that I want us to see in the text this morning is found in verses 19 through 23. A second principle is this. With the gospel of Christ as our priority, we place no obstacle in the way of others by becoming servants to all. We must become servants to all. And you see this principle established in verse 19. Look there. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So for Paul, his freedom in Christ meant serving others. And he lovingly and willingly submitted himself to the interests and to the backgrounds of others in whatever context that he ministered in order that he might win more to Christ. He was burdened for the salvation of lost souls. So one commentator writes that every encounter, every personal habit, 
was now overtly under the control of Jesus Christ as Lord because the gospel dominated his whole life. Paul was living his daily life in the light of eternity, and that meant evangelism with integrity, relationships with adaptability, and personal holiness with single-mindedness. And Paul made himself a servant to all. And how did, how did he do that? Well, it was not by a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. He did indeed have a message to proclaim, but his method was flexible. We, we also see this in the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ as well, who, who spoke to each of individual according to their need. To Nicodemus, the Jew, he, he talked to him about his need of being born again. And then to the Samaritan woman, he spoke to her about her need for living water. And then to the rich young ruler, Jesus told him, you must surrender and sell all your possessions and come and follow me, Christ said. So each situation looked a little bit different, but the message remained the same. There is no one-way formula for sharing the gospel. It can look different every time. And you see this principle illustrated in Paul's life, where he says, verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, Paul himself was a Jew, and he was burdened for other Jews to come to Christ. In Christ, he was free from the law, but he willingly and lovingly submitted himself to those practices of the law of the Old Covenant when he was with the Jews in order to not place an obstacle in their way. Things like the Sabbath or, or the purity laws or dietary restrictions, Paul was willing, though he was free from that law, in order to win Jews to Christ, he was willing to abide by that principle so, he, so as to not put an obstacle in the way of others. And so he says, he continues on, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And then verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. This speaks of the Gentiles, of those who did not have a Jewish heritage, those who were not raised under the law of God. And Paul, when he sought to minister to them, he did not adopt their sinful practices, but he adapted himself to their cultural customs as an act of love. And then he says in verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. So both in the church and outside the church, Paul's greatest concern as he sought to follow the Lord Jesus Christ was to serve others, to place others before himself. And speaking of the weak, this ties back into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what we studied a few weeks ago where the supposed stronger brothers were causing the weaker brothers to stumble by insisting on their own rights. But we must be willing to accommodate our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what love does. Love also seeks to not place stumbling blocks in the way of the gospel towards lost souls. We must be willing to accommodate the lost and not seek to impose our cultural practices on others. We are called to build bridges, not barriers. 
You see a principle restated in verses 22 and 23 when Paul writes, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And his great aim in becoming a servant to all was to see lost souls come to Christ. He wanted to see the gospel advance in every place and in every way. You know, the great missionary Hudson Taylor was a wonderful example of being all things to all men. Hudson Taylor was originally born in England, and after he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, after he was born again, he became burdened to take the gospel to the country of China. Over the course of his lifetime, he ended up ministering in China for 51 years. And though it was somewhat unheard of at the time, during his ministry in China, Hudson Taylor began to adopt some of the cultural practices of the Chinese. He started to dress like them, and he cut, their hair, cut his hair in order to look more like them. He, he studied and learned and respected their culture. And his missionary principle was rooted in the Apostle Paul's example of 1 Corinthians 9 and becoming all things to all men. Hudson Taylor's cry during his ministry was this, to let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. He was willing to do whatever it took apart from sin in order to reach and win them for Christ. He made himself a servant to all men, and he won many souls to Christ. It has been noted that Hudson Taylor's ministry in, in China and, and with the organizations that were started there, it has resulted in over 18,000 conversions to Christ. Praise the Lord for his ministry and his willingness to go there with the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we necessarily need to dress and look like those to whom we are seeking to minister, to the, those who are, we are seeking to share the gospel with. For in some cases, that may actually be more of an obstacle than not. But I think the challenge for us to consider is, am I willing to learn about the cultural background and upbringings of other people, especially others that are different from me, in order that I might better understand their story to share Christ with them? Am I, lear am I interested in learning about their story before I seek to share with them the story of the gospel? Or have I adopted a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism? Do I think it only looks one certain way? Also, am I, am I concerned, am I burdened about the gospel going, really going forth locally and, and globally to the neighbors, to our neighbors and, and to the nations? And of course, we praise God that we're, we belong to a church who is faithfully committed to this endeavor, to the great commission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And let us remember that God's kingdom is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and from people of all walks of life. And brothers and sisters, we are to become servants of all people for the sake of the gospel. And our great aim in seeking to love others 
of loving the lost should be to win them to Christ. Now, there's a third principle that I want us to see in verses 24 through 27. Third principle, with the gospel of Christ as our priority, we place no obstacle in the way of others by exercising self-control. We're to exercise self-control. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Paul gives us an athletic illustration, and he says that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And to exercise self-control, it means to keep one's emotions, desires, and impulses under control. Exercising self-control requires restraint. It is to be in control of oneself, to command your own desires, to be in control of your own body. And that's what Paul means when he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. It means saying no to things in order to be more effective. Every athlete, of course, knows something of this requirement. And those in, in Corinth were particularly familiar with Paul's point. The city of Corinth was home to the Isthmian Games, which were somewhat like our modern Olympic Games, but on a much smaller scale. They were held every two years. Uh, the sports included running, boxing, and other, other sports. And those who trained for the Isthmian Games had to submit themselves to rigorous training for 10 months, and if they could not make it all the way through, they were disqualified. A Greek philosopher in the first century wrote of athletes during this time. He said that they have to submit to discipline, follow a strict diet, give up sweet cakes, train under compulsion at a fixed hour in heat or in cold, and that they were not to drink cold water. And whatever sweet cakes were in the first century, I'm sure they were difficult to give up. But consider another example with me in more recent times, the Olympic runner Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt, he's the winner of nine gold medals and considered to be the greatest sprinter of all time. As you would expect, he submits himself to a rigorous training program, diet and exercise as he uh, would train. And part of his training included 90-minute workouts that would strengthen his agility and speed also, his diet was very strict during the training time. During the daytime, he would only eat enough to have energy for training. And he said that he would try to go for long periods, up to three months, without any fast food. And Bolt has to say no to a lot of things in order to train properly. And why does he do this? Well, he doesn't do it just to be healthier. He says no to all these things in order to be a more effective runner. So exercising self-control for him requires restraint, the saying, saying no in order to be more effective. And that's what we're called to do as well, to say no to whatever may present itself as an obstacle in the way of others. That may, of course, be matters of food or drink. 
But there are a myriad of other applications as well, including our own personal preferences. We must be willing to say no to certain things so as to not hinder the gospel. Exercising self-control also requires exertion. It requires exertion. When Paul says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. To run here is it's a command that calls for strong effort. And it could be understood in this way. You all must continue running the race. When you became a Christian, you were entered into a lifelong marathon. And yes, the Lord has begun a good work in you and will faithfully carry it on to completion. But brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to run the race that is set before us. We do it not in our own strength, but in the strength that the Lord provides. And part of exerting effort in the Christian life means following the Lord's commands to live as disciple makers and fishers of men. We want to see others join the race as well. And what motivates us to this end? What motivates us to, to reach others for Christ? Well, it's living with an eternal perspective, as the Apostle Paul did, with our eyes on the prize. And that's why exercising self-control, it also requires focus, a focus on the final reward. At the Isthmian Games in Corinth, do you know what the, what the final reward was for the athletes that competed? The final reward, the perishable wreath, was made the crown of wild celery. That was the perishable wreath for which they competed. But Paul says, we are to receive an imperishable wreath. And the Bible calls it the unfading crown of glory, and it speaks of the the eternal, the reward of eternal life itself. Thus, Paul, at the end of his life, he was able to write these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Let me read them to you. 2 Timothy 4, the end of Paul's life, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We all await a crown of righteousness. So let us be motivated to reach others for Christ with our eyes on the prize of the eternal reward that awaits us. Let us discipline ourselves to focus on the final reward. And we've considered much of what it means to not place obstacles in the way of others this morning, of, of surrendering our rights, of becoming servants to all, and of exercising self-control. And as we've studied the text this morning, as we come to an end, I, I think it's fitting for us the question that we need to ask ourselves, that each one of us needs to reflect on personally is this, am I hindering the gospel of Christ? Is there anything in my life personally that could be an obstacle in the way of others? Is there any attitude or, or action or 
lifestyle or mentality that could be hindering others, specifically the lost souls around us. It has been said that we are either helping or hindering the gospel. And perhaps one of the greatest hindrances that we deal with today that I know that I personally wrestle with is that of apathy or indifference. That though I know I ought to be con- concerned and burdened for the lost, that the burden is, not great, is as great in my soul as it ought to be. And that's why Charles Spurgeon once said that winners of souls must first be weepers of souls. In other words, there must be a brokenness for the lost. Again, this convicts me because I know that I'm not as burdened as I ought to be. But every, every single one of us are called to go to the lost with the gospel, to win souls for Christ. And may God grant us a greater burden to reach the lost with the gospel in our town, in our city that the Lord has placed us in. You know, around 150,000 people die each and every single day. And how many are dying without hearing of Christ? Around 6,000 people die every hour. How many have, have never heard the gospel? Around 100 people die each minute. And nearly two people die each and every second. And how many are dying without Christ? How many have never heard of this glorious message of the gospel? So insofar as we are able, brothers and sisters, may we seek to proclaim this great and glorious gospel of Christ crucified, the only message that can bring eternal life. And do you have a one that that you're praying for, someone in your life that that you're seeking to reach with the gospel? I know that studying this passage has caused me to consider how I can be more faithful in that area of praying for uh, the family that we're trying to reach in our neighborhood. May we all be compelled to a greater burden for the lost souls around us in our our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. But I want to finish this morning by reminding us of the great and glorious gospel that has saved us. So, and, and that which we have the privilege of proclaiming so that we would be compelled to help and to not hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who came into this world to seek and to save lost sinners. The Bible says that every single one of us have disobeyed God's law. We have all broken his commands, and that is what sin is. It is disobedience to God's perfect and holy standard. God demands perfect obedience to his law, and we have all broken his law. The Bible says that all have sinned, all have fallen short, all stand in need of a Savior. The Bible tells us that sin demands a penalty, and that penalty is death. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that sin when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who willingly surrendered his rights, who laid down his life for us. He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one who took on flesh to ransom us, fully God, becoming fully man, to ransom lost sinners. Christ is the one who, as the writer of Hebrews says, he was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
That is, he was made like us so that he could absorb the entirety of the wrath of God on the cross when he shed his blood for us. He is the one who ran the race perfectly in our place. Christ is the one who, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. He died in our place, a criminal's death that we all deserve to die. And he was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. He is our risen Savior, the Lord of the universe, the one who has come to save us. This is the glorious message of the gospel. This is the gospel that we get to proclaim. And friends, if you're here today, if any one of you is here today and you have not yet bowed to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not yet surrendered your life to him, I want to plead with you this day to come all the way to Christ, to come with open hands and cling to the cross of Christ, to know that your greatest obstacle between you and the Lord, that is your sin, it has been dealt with at the cross. The gospel is free of charge. Jesus paid the price for your sin. Though you, we all deserve death, Jesus died in our place. And if you would but turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, today you will be saved. And there are many of us that would love to speak with you about following Christ this day. During the last songs, there'll be some people on the sides that you can come and speak with, or you can talk to one of the pastors in the lobby afterwards today. We would love to speak with you about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And for my brothers and sisters, in light of all that we've heard this morning, in light of God's word to us, may we all seek to be faithful in whatever our resolutions would be this year. May we all be resolved to preach the gospel and to place no obstacle in the way of others. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great opportunity to study it this morning. We pray that you would continue to impress its truth on our hearts and move us, Lord, to action that we may be compelled to proclaim your gospel. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.